Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Connectomics podcast. I'm your host, Mark Michael James, and I'm delighted to be able to bring to you for this uh, first episode a conversation I had recently with Dr. Tom Frosa. Tom is the head of the unit here at OICE, that's the Embodied Cognitive Science Unit. And he's someone, as you'll hear, with a very wide range of interests, um, curiosities in many disciplines, and experience in a wide range of disciplines too, from engineering to computer science to philosophy and all the way back again. Tom is also somebody with a rather uncommon ability, I think, to be able to synthesize insights from those various disciplines and, and curiosities, but do so in a way that's um, also very clear and coherent in its communication. I had envisioned this conversation as maybe being the first episode because part of our ambition in it was to kind of lay out the foundations for what might follow. And I think if you've listened to the introduction and get a sense for what we're aiming at in this podcast, I do think this is a a good first step or a good illustration of um, taking that whole project a little bit deeper. So I'm not going to say too much. Hopefully the conversation speaks for itself. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can reach me at markmichaeljames at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mark. M. James, and if you want to contact Tom, I believe he communicates his uh, contact details at the end of the episode, so you can hang around until then. And so, without further ado, I bring you a conversation I had recently with Dr. Tom Flosson. Today on the podcast, I have uh, my unit head here in Okinawa and Oist, um, Dr. Tom Froze. Hello, Tom. Hello. How are you? Good. Looking forward to this conversation. Good, good. We've been intending to do this for a while and scheduled it and rescheduled it, but now we're sitting down to do it. So Finally. So, Tom, I think a lot of our listeners, uh, certainly if they're listening from within the unit, but more broadly, will obviously be familiar with you and your work Um certainly know your name and you know you're someone who I think was in you know in absence or from a distance very informative to me in my own work and a lot of the people I was working alongside um, when we were thinking about notions of embodied cognition and so on Um, and I guess we have a lot to talk about here but maybe a good way of kind of getting into the conversation of um, finding a starting point is is to I guess I'm interested to hear about your introduction to embodiment as a kind of general stance within the sciences, or what was it that maybe turned you on to this idea or this uh, approach? And, um, you know, maybe if you can tie that in a little bit with a bit of biography or something for our sure, yeah. listeners. Uh, let me think about how far should I go back. As <laughs> <laughs> you feel uh, you need to. Um, well, maybe I should mention that uh, my my parents are both um, uh, to some extent researchers. So mm. so my dad definitely um, he, he's a biologist, marine biologist, and 
So from a very early age, you know, he introduced me to I don't know, evolutionary theory, mm. um, species diversity, and things like that. And I was there was a long period in my childhood where I was like, you know, having all these aquariums in my okay, uh, okay. in my room, like breeding fish and like you know looking at all of that. And so, um, and he had also had philosophical interests. So he was very much uh, um, interested in the dialectical materialism and, and and that way of thinking about what biology is all about. Mm. Um, and uh, and my mother um, uh, was interested in pedagogy, and she studied um, the works of a Piaget, um, but also constructivist approaches. Um, and so it was a kind of interesting clash. I only realized this later, but they're actually quite different, right? So you have the kind of materialist mm. view on the one hand, which looks at the natural sciences, and then you have the kind of constructivist view on the other side that looks at the social sciences. Right, right. Uh, and somehow, you know, I I took both of that yeah, in yeah. my childhood. Yeah, I was going to say, the people who know you won't be surprised to hear some of that, right? <laughs> you do seem to embody both those stances. Right. And uh, uh, was there, say, in your childhood then, was there a particular interest in pursuing ideas? Was it just the obvious thing? You know, for me, where I grew up, it was like kind of obvious you were going to be in construction in some way. Okay. <laughs> That's how I ended up, right? But that was kind of obvious. It was just kind of a given but for you, was there some sense of like, you know, that this is this is the path ahead? Um, I think I was playing with that a little bit. But um, w- what what really kindled my my passion in those days was um, the burgeoning scene of computer games, actually. Um, and there was a lot of strategy games around that we just played for hours. And modems were just uh, coming around where we could connect, you know, house- households and then start playing together and. That kind of like a virtual presence of playing together really uh, interested me. But something that really annoyed me about those games, and and this will take us on the story, so to speak, is that the AI was very bad. Mm. And there was nothing lifelike about it. And you could just trick it with the simplest tricks that, you know, if you just build a wall around it, then it would just be trapped there forever. And it would never think that you could actually, like, you know, shoot its way through or something like that. So, um, you know, I was always thinking that, you know, surely we should be able to do better. and so my career interest was actually neither of what my parents did, but really wanting to go into computer science and with a kind of engineering mindset and saying, I want to just, you know, construct uh, more intelligent artificial systems. Um, and that's what I then, you know, uh, tried to do for my undergraduate. Um, along the way, so one more thing is that I did come across philosophy um, in the theory of knowledge course that I took in, in, um, in high school. And, and that really kind of like opened my eye to the world of philosophy. And I really started reading a lot of philosophy on the side. But it was, again, mainly with the interest of thinking about how can we take these traditions of people really dedicating their life to thinking about how, how the mind works, mm-hmm. trying to create better uh, AI systems. There was this mix of philosophy and AI already since high school there. Interesting. Was there an obvious... Did you have an obvious sense of applications for that over and above just better video games at the time? Or was it? Not really. You know, it was (laughs) as a teenager, you know, trying to play these games and getting a kick out of them. It was really quite applied. Um, And, you know, for school projects, I would program like, you know, um, artificial agents that could solve, I don't know, tic-tac-toe or like very simple games or something like that. Um, Yeah, but in that, when I... Then started university, and this is where I think the story gets a little bit more interesting. And I started learning about the history of AI and the philosophy of AI, and I had a few cognitive science modules um, there too. Um, this was at the University of Reading, and one of the places that had a cybernetics degree, um, yeah. and which was very interesting because it had this whole complex systems perspective yeah. to it as well. Um, 
I, I pretty much quickly realized that some of these problems went deeper than an engineering solution. Mm. Um, I have to take, take uh, more time to fully understand what is the mind. Um, and, and yeah, so, so I think that really then got me into the path of switching from an engineering career in AI to something more like cognitive science. So when you say some of these problems, mm-hmm. you had some sort of problem space that you were kind of oriented towards a little bit. What, what, what were the problems? Right. So um, I guess that all the different systems that I was uh, trying out, um, uh, the good old fashioned AI, neural networks, I was playing with evolutionary algorithm. Uh, I was building uh, my own robots, uh, both using mechanical engineering and electronic design as part of the university, but also as a kind of fun you know, home projects, building these robot kits or with uh, Lego Mindstorms and things like that, you know. Um, but they, ever, they would never re- really surprise me in any fundamental way. Mm. Um, and so I started to get disillusioned a little bit with what we can do with these, these systems. And the kind of, um, maybe that's where part of what my father's, you know, let's say, you know, education came a little bit back in. You know, I said, but, but living systems do it somehow, mm. you know. Mm. They're also systems. But they don't seem to have this very closed nature and very predictable nature and these very drastic breakdowns. Mm. So then I started to think, like, well, if I really wanted to get good AI going, maybe I should understand what life is. Mm. So it sounds like you were aiming at something like a, a general AI from the start, right? There was some sense mm-hmm. of, okay, there's there's something we call intelligence, but here it's that's right. merely functionality yeah. that's been programmed in. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that led you to... I know your work from, really from a kind of, um, you mentioned it at the start, but I know your work from uh, an understanding or an approach to embodied sociality. Mm-hmm. How did you start to, was that just a, a kind of continuation of the same dissatisfaction, right? You see that mm. there's not enough complexity in the in the AI, but then you start something more like a life-life system and then you, you, you have to keep pushing it, right? You eventually get to a social system and this keeps adding complexity and more and more lifelike or was there something else? Yeah, that's there? interesting. I, I think it, it actually goes back to this um, this degree at the University of Reading. One of my projects was evolving agents that could evolve their own communication protocol in mm. order to optimize their foraging strategies. So there already was a mixture of, you know, um, individual agents, but uh, you know, some biological processes, um, but then somehow bringing in this social component to see what could they do more in interaction than, than in isolation. Mm. Um, but I think the, the, the kind of key moment um, uh, to really think about embodied sociality in a, in a stronger sense came with when I started to realize that um, if you to properly understand life, we have to think about autonomy, biological autonomy. Maybe we can talk more about you know, that, that later. Um, but uh, that, to some extent, you know, shifted me from what you call general AI or general intelligence, right? I started with that vision. Then I started to doing something more like behavior-based robotics and, mm. you know, something more lifelike. To Then I ended up with my PhD at Sussex thinking about, you know, basic life as such, you know, the origin of life. What's the minimal right. Right. condition for life? Right. And then I was so far removed from trying to understand how we get something like human intelligence, right? right. So then somehow going from that most basic layer back up to something like, you know, human intelligence, um, my, my, my thinking was that actually it has to do with interaction, mm. you know, uh, interaction between cells on one level. So we start as a single cell organism, but then 18 years later, we can be a university student, 
right? So there's something happening there that takes us from a single cell almost to a you know full-fledged human being. But also uh, in terms of enculturation, mm-hmm. um, it started becoming clear to me that you know if general intelligence is not something innate that's built in, then where does it come from? And it seems to be coming from these these uh, social practices uh, in which we are growing up in. And so that's where I really then started shifting my view that if I want to understand the specifically human uh, mind, mm-hmm. then there's no other way but to understand how we are interfacing with our embodiment and also the social life around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting when you lay it out like that, you're kind of, um, I guess, because I, you know, when I hear you, you tell your story, my own story comes up a little bit. <laughs> <coughs> okay, uh, sure, go ahead. No, no, I, I don't want to repeat it here, but it's just to, to think... Uh, how how good a starting point you had in some way when you when you kind of simplified everything and went back to like what is basic life mm-hmm. and then tried to build a story back up from there. Right, right. I think that's a really good pedagogical move, right? right yeah. Somewhere I've never got. It's always <laughs> just been kind of a lot more messy. Um, but you you talked about interaction there, and I think we'll get back to this in a bit more length because um, that's something you 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 kind of. It's almost a motto, right? That you have interaction matters, right? That's right. And yeah. there's there's varying types of interaction and different forms of complexity uh, emerge from those types of interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that's like one of the kind of themes of the unit in a sense. But I'm wondering if we can kind of pull back a little bit and uh, and think about the unit as a whole, and then think about the themes that organize the unit, and maybe start to kind of walk through those for our listeners and for anybody who's listening. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, the starting point is kind of built into our name here mm-hmm. in OIST. Uh, we're, we're in, we com- help comprise the Embodied Cognitive Science Unit. Mm-hmm. And that is a, you know, to a lot of people listening, they will have a lot of kind of interpretations of what that is. Some people might be confused by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, you were a participant, you launched the unit in effect, and I'm wondering... Um, you know, if we take embodiment as a starting point, um, why why embodiment? Wh- where does that make its way into this story? And then why is that the kind of organizing frame for this unit? Yeah, yeah good questions. Um, so what is embodiment? Um, so in this story that I was telling, this shift from moving from AI to looking at basic life also involved a shift in my, my concept of embodiment. So um, let's say at the University of Reading, as part of uh, the cybernetics and computer science and, and system science that I was working on there, embodiment to some extent was just a robot, right? A robot is an embodied agent. Mm-hmm. Um, it can move around, it can sense, um, you know, it interacts and, you know, interaction matters uh, also for those systems. Um, but then, uh, then the question is, then why is there this gap between those kinds of agents right. and living systems? Um, and then looking more closely at what are the basic conditions of, of life, I started to realize that their embodiment is actually a very different kind of embodiment compared to these artificial um, And one of the, um, there are several different ways of unpacking it, but at a very conceptual level, um, the difference is one of self-production. So a living being, to some extent, is the product, product of its own activity. Right? So it has processes that generate uh, its internal structure, it's, it's, you know, the material basis of itself is coming out of those processes. Um, and while it's doing that, it's also self-defining the boundaries uh, around itself such that, um, you know, when it builds like the membrane or the skin, that's the separation between inside and outside, physiologically speaking. 
And that's something that comes out of the organism itself and its own activity. When we look at artificial systems, uh, it's actually me, the designer, who's building the Lego robot this way or another way, and I decide, you know, is this brick part of it or not, and so on. And it's a completely external um, process. And then that makes it kind of arbitrary, right? Someone else could come in and say, hey, but I want to carve the system up in a different way. I also, also want to include the wheels as what defines the agent or whatever. Um, but for living systems, you know, they don't have this luxury of saying, I could carve this up any way I want. Uh, only some ways of being carved up actually allow them to persist and to adapt and to, to continue living. Mm. Um, and so there's a very strict criterion that if you don't create yourself materially in the right way, you're just going to cease existing mm. altogether. Mm. And that's a very different kind of breakdown than, let's say, a robot stopping to, to function. Mm. Um, so there are many things that we can unpack there, but one kind of notion of um, that relates to embodiment is that in the living case, it's actually more a process of individuation. So their embodiment really means, you know, the process of making yourself uh, an individual. Mm. Um, and so this unit, that's the embodied cognitive science unit, when the word embodied is quite broad and encompassing in the sense that we also work with virtual agents, we also have robots and so on. Um, so it's kind of broad in that sense because we can use those to study interaction processes and how interaction affects uh, the components. Um, but when we want to become, let's say, more strict about it and say what makes living systems different, what makes human minds different from artificial minds, um, then we need to take into consideration that our form of embodiment is quite distinct from those artificial forms of embodiment. Yeah, yeah. I think, so it would be true to say that along with this, and, and this maybe gets me to the next um, part of, of the Embodied Cognitive Science Unit uh, framing, along with this comes a sense of concern or care for for one's activities and for what happens in one's environment. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? In, in, in an act of cognitive science, we talk about autopoiesis or we talk about autonomy and we talk about this as providing some sort of normative relationship to the world. Mm -hmm. But can you say something about maybe why embodiment, say, gives us this grasp on something like meaning or care or functionality or however you want to think about it? Mm -hmm. And maybe how that's different from, uh, say, more traditionalist in, traditional intellectualist positions. Sure, yeah. So um, let's take the let's go back to the basic life kind of examples, uh, which which help us to to think about this a bit more clearly. Um, we can think of a, a you know a hypothetical living system which just needs one kind of nutrient, let's say that it needs to find its environment uh, and it can you know sense the gradient of, of this nutrient. Um, but if it doesn't have this nutrient, then its processes will run out of fuel and it will basically disintegrate back into its environment. So we can basically say that um, there is an interaction here between what the system is, you know, as a living being, and what it does. These two are not separable. Mm -hmm. um, and such that, you know, if there's a failure of the one, uh, let's say it doesn't properly sense the gradient of the nutrient that it needs, that then has implications for actually its material existence and it will disintegrate. Mm -hmm. um, and this is not a knockdown argument, but we want to, um, you know, use this uh, as saying, this justifies us uh, in, in attributing something like normativity because success and failure here is something that is intrinsic to the very being of this uh, organism. Mm. If this was an artificial system, you know, we can wire up a robot with some sensors. Um, a, you know, a classic example could be a light-following robot that you know, has a 
you know, um, battery that charges when it's close to light or something like that. Um, in that case, there might also be some interdependence, but, you know, if the battery runs out, well, well, we can just replace it or we can charge it later and then the robot works again. Um, and, and you know, if we somehow switch around the sensors or something like that, you know, then the robot will just happily move away from the light uh, and, and there doesn't seem to be any difference in terms of its functioning. Um, you know, it, eventually the battery will run out and that's it, but there's no change in its organization. There's no attempt at adaptation or anything like that. Um, so it doesn't care, basically. It doesn't seem to really care about how it's interacting with the environment. Um, you know, it might be hard to detect that with very sim simple living beings, but because their relationship of what they do and what they are is intrinsically, you know, codependent, um, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that we think makes us, uh, um, you know, that we're pointing to the origins of normativity in that case. Mm. And and this brings us on, I think, to you know, its relevance for cognition, right? So. Cognition gets a kind of different framing here, and maybe this is a good place to talk about mm -hmm. um, what's distinctive about cognition from an embodied stance, or maybe even particularly an active stance. So, in the unit, right, our second term, we've, we're in the the embodied cognitive science unit. Um, what do we mean by cognition? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the it's again, it's a very broad term, just like embodiment. Um, and so some people uh, just simply equate it with information processing, um, but but generally, to my mind, you um, need something a little bit more narrowly defined. Um, otherwise, you know, even um, pretty much any system can be described as being cognitive in to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, so what we what we want is uh, um, something that has an intrinsic perspective on the world, something that makes a difference to how that world is perceived. Um, so having a perspective, having a stance, having a take on something, um, that is cognitive uh, activity. Um, and how is this different from the kind of adaptation that I just described for the, for let's say this, you know, let's say bacterium going up a sugar gradient or something like that, um, is that cognition to some extent becomes a little bit decoupled from some of these metabolic processes. Um, so it's not just adaptation anymore, let's say, right? So as the bacteria might be said that, you know, there's normativity there, but it's a normativity of adaptation, perhaps, not of cognition. Um, cognition brings in norms that don't necessarily directly relate to your ongoing self-preservation. Um, and this slight decoupling is um, something that uh, enables the, the system to, you know, um, be, you know, um, considering things that are not necessarily here and now, right? So mm. absences become impossible to deal with. You can think about the future. You can think about the past. You can think about other people, right? Um, all of that opens up once you start becoming a little bit detached from the basic material processes of your body. Right. But say the, the kind of general organizing, um, say, structures or, or forms or the kind of basic organizing logic of cognition is even when we decouple it from embodiment or embodiment kind of proper, um, still it takes something from that, right? It's 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 there's a basic model there that it's continuing or some in some way. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, let me just give one example that uh, I think is useful to think about. It co like connects all the different levels uh, of human existence. We can think of an example of smoking. Um, you know, when I was a student, I was a smoker for some time. And, you know, why did I start smoking? Maybe because I watched the wrong movies or had the wrong friends. Or I don't know. Um, you know, but so that was, a, I think it was a social cultural 
uh, aspect to why I started smoking. And of course, there's a whole industry behind that, right? Um, but once I started, um, you know, at some point, I felt it difficult not to do it anymore. And that need didn't come from any kind of social context. It actually came from my body. You know, there was a need, a need was created through a social cultural practice that wasn't there before. Um, and so actually this social cultural practice somehow reshaped my embodiment at a physiological level such that a new need um, was created. Mm. Um, and I think to some extent, uh, cognition is a little bit like that. Um, it's, it's formed out of habits. Even mental processes can be habitual processes. Um, and in that sense, they have a structure of self-maintenance such that if you enact them, they're going to be more likely to be enacted again in the future. Mm. And this kind of recursive structure of um, you know, doing something now such that it can happen again in the future shares some organizational aspects with metabolism itself. Mm. So self-production, you know, could be then, you know, very roughly speaking, a habit of, you know, material existence or something like that. Mm. I think a lot of people, when they think about habits, think about kind of automata, you know, basic kind of... Um, pre-reflective structures that are more or less kind of going to do what they're going to do. Um, is the notion of habit you're using different than that? The same as that? What is the difference? Um, yeah, I mean, this is a bit difficult to unpack in detail now, but I think we can get a kind of intuition um, that because we think that normativity enters the picture um, uh, when we talk about self-production, but also these other higher level habits, it's not going to be such a simple story that will take us all the way back to something like a robot, almost like like a pure mechanical, you know, process that just automatically unfolds. Um, so it has something more organic. It has something normative, and usually normativity already implies some flexibility of how to reach your your goals um, and the conditions of uh, success. Um, of course, when you're talking about very low-level habits, um, you know maybe they will not be so easily, uh, you know, changed. Um, but usually, even even those are adaptable. So, for example, you know, uh, even an animal, let's say, you know, who learns how to walk, if something happens to their leg, they will adapt to that injury and and adopt a different kind of habit of walking in consequence. Mm -hmm. So, habits are, in a sense, um, emergent. Properties, relations, uh, dispositions—it's hard to know what the right term is. Like a network of processes, maybe. Network of processes. Mm -hmm. Self-maintaining network of processes. And and that allow us to kind of flexibly flexibly attune to our environment. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe even if something looks um, more kind of determined, you know, it looks more um, uh, automistic or something that that reflects actually something in the person world relationship that um, maybe there's a need for that kind of stability mm -hmm. and this stability doesn't come for free i think um, you know this is one of the big problems of cognitive science that as adults you know everything seems like it can happen on autopilot you know for a lot of the times because we already spent a whole lifetime you know fine-tuning all the habits right, that make right. up our identity right sure um but when you look at this, uh, it's actually like an amazing achievement um, because there all the time there are micro adjustments happening at all levels of description such that, you know, depending on the shape of the bottle on the table and its position, you know, my hand when I reach for it will do all these little adjustments that are actually outside of my awareness so I can grip it properly. Mm. Um, trying to replicate that artificially is extremely hard. Mm. Uh, and so originally, you know, the people who were, who were working in AI and robotics thought that, you know, the really hard things were going to be things like playing chess, 
right? And the other stuff, that's the easy stuff, you know, right, that you can just right. do a robot that like walks around. Turns out it's the opposite, you know, right, getting right. a properly walking robot like that can do any kind of terrain is like one of those holy grails of robotics, whereas chess was cracked like, you know, years ago. So mm. uh, interestingly enough, it turns out that our embodied intelligence, that's the really, really hard intelligence that to replicate artificially. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe this is an interesting kind of juncture to, to think about um, the the methodologies of an embodied cognitive science. So, f- from from listening to you and from from knowing you and and knowing your interests in artificial life and how that's kind of continued to this day, and is part of your ambition still to get to the point where um, we can build robots that have this more lifelike, uh, say, dimension to their activity, or is is the interest in robots now more of an interest as a kind of, uh, you know, as a kind of sandbox for mm-hmm. exploring cognition? Um, uh, it's definitely the second part by now. Right. Um, I think the the um, this vision that at some point we might be sitting across each other, and I'm not sure whether you're an android or not. Um, I think uh, that's you know something that we shouldn't invest too much energy into. First, for practical reasons, but also for in principle reasons. You know, um, I, I don't necessarily think that that's going to solve the world's problems to, to create human-like robots. Um, but um, yeah, so for the sandbox, it's still incredibly useful. Um, you know, it's it's so hard for us to think about how does interaction matter. Um, we're so used to thinking about you know solid entities and mm-hmm. looking at their properties. But when we start talking about the interactions between these components, between these entities, how do you measure that? Mm. It's so ephemeral. You don't see it, right? right, right, right. You see the effects, but you don't see the relationship itself, mm. right? I just think about this, right? Um, you, know, you see two people standing next to each other. One is taller than the other. Mm. Where do you see the relationship tallerness, you know? It's not something that's there, you know? So you would have to measure it, compare it somehow, right? But it's not there like a, one of the components of that relationship is, right? Um, so... I think that um, really getting a better intuition about how interaction matters, these little toy systems are brilliant. Mm. Um, because even with the very simplest uh, agent environment model, um, you, you'll get surprised at how much the, the components, including the agent itself, gets transformed by the kinds of interactions in which it engages. Yeah, I'm thinking of the kind of Brooksian-inspired um, exactly. passive walking robots here. They just put on a gentle incline and they start to walk. That's right. Almost lifelike, right? Yep. So there's something emergent in the relationship between the, um, I suppose, uh, physics and the organization of the body of the robot and, and the physics of the environment. Um, <clears throat> so methodologies then, right? So we have robotics as one domain, one space to kind of play and do some some, some science that maybe can be instructive to uh, an embodied cognitive scientific understanding is there any other methodologies that we bring to bear or that you foresee has been useful or that you think are useful presently? Sure, and uh, it goes back to uh, this point about um, whether some of this could still feed back into uh, you know, improved AI systems. Right. Um, I do think there's a role for embodied cognitive science in shaping the future of technology. Um, but it's not in the sense that we will you know, design human-like robots or something like that. But it's about um, 
designing better interfaces, you know. Um, uh, so if we understand the power of interaction and how it shapes us and how it shapes our environments, um, then we can derive principles from that that improve all the kinds of interfaces that we use. And there's more of them every day, right? We're kind of like surrounded by all mm -hmm. kinds of interfaces, whether it's your cell phone or your computer and all the social media that's on there and phones and, you know, um, all of that. Uh, so it... In a lot of it is already empowered by AI in the background. We don't see it so much, but it's there operating in the in, in, in these systems when they suggest you new songs that you might like and so on. Um, so I think that there's a role for AI in creating more adaptable, more customizable, you know, more individualized interfaces. Uh, mm. And and but then really the the vision of AI is one where we want to talk about um, you know. How do we create or design interfaces that empower us in the right kind of way? Mm. Yeah, so do you think um, that we're getting into a conversation here about technology a little bit, and but we can come back to the other stuff, but I, I think this is a, an interesting route to go down. The, so do you think that an embodied cognitive scientific stance like frames that whole uh, discovery quite differently, right? If we, if we acknowledge this... Um, something about the relationship of the body, a bit like the Brookstein-inspired robot, that is um, s supports these emergent uh, experiences walking in that context, but could be other experiences elsewhere. Um, what, what about an embodied cognitive scientific stance, or maybe even in an active stance more particularly, what does that suggest in terms of interfaces for you at this point? Um, yeah, so there are some design principles that, that uh, we can already propose, um, and that is uh, um, we have to take into account user experience much more than it has been done in the past. Um, you know, uh, cognitive science and AI was dominated by functionalism, right? So that basically means that um, on the one hand, you don't, don't care about the implementation details as long as it has the same function, but on the other hand, you also don't care about the experience of it as long as it gets the job done. Um, and so that's kind of like the design stance that, you know, the early computers are so followed that, you know, uh, you know, you just had to put in this whole card and punch the whole card and then it will work for a few days and then give you a number out on the other side. Right. So that kind of system, you know, is really going far back, but still it's instructive to look at it. And, you know, there was no sense that this was an interface almost. It was a part of the world that you were working with, uh, but it's not like you were looking through it. To something else uh, in in the world, whereas um, nowadays, uh, you know, uh, I can look through, let's say, my my phone and use an automatic translator app that basically does Japanese to English in real time, and I can actually read English on on you know on the wall, let's say, even though it's written in Japanese. Mm. Now that's a very different kind of design stance, where now the technology is giving us a different perspective uh, on on the real world, rather than you know occluding it behind this huge black box that. You know, it would be impossible to understand how it operates on, on the inside. And so I think we will probably see more of this in the future. We're like at a stage where it doesn't really matter much anymore which particular computer you buy or which particular smartphone you buy. They all do everything, you know. They, they all can do, you know, email. They all can do phone calls. They all can do take pictures, you know. They all can do whatever you want. Um, so how are you going to choose which one of those you're going to buy? It has to do with your user experience. You know, which one most naturally integrates itself into your daily way of life, uh, that's the one you're going to buy, mm -hmm. right? So there's going to be a natural tendencies for companies um, 
that if you've got the winning experience, right, you know, this really feels like a different thing. This really feels like how you want to experience the world with this technology. That's what's going to dominate the market, not the function anymore. Um, and so this is where inactive cognitive science can really come in because, you know, the the kind of style of science that we do is precisely looking at how interactions shape our experience of the world. And that would be almost another kind of way of phrasing what inactive cognitive science is actually about. Mm. Yeah, so I guess there's territory yet to be explored, right? But it's uh, contributing to that orientation in some way. Um, so yeah, go back to methodologies another mm -hmm. uh, a bit. So do you do you also see um, say qualitative qualitative uh, methodologies here? Do you see more classical kind of psychology is involved? And what 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 else do you see as you know part of that kind of landscape? Mm -hmm. Well, we can reflect a little bit about the constellation of cognitive science, actually. Um, so uh, what are the six disciplines? We have um, AI, psychology, linguistics, neuroscience, neuroscience philosophy, philosophy, and anthropology. anthropology. That, that was the original constellation. Um, and the idea was that, you know, if we think about the mind as a physical symbol system, basically meaning like a digital computer, then somehow all these disciplines should be able to work together um, and then moving forward, at some point, anthropology silently dropped out of that picture. Um, and the, uh, the other one, five ones uh, pursued uh, um, something that initially didn't really distinguish whether it was computer science, AI, or neuroscience, uh, you know, because the metaphor of computation basically meant that, and functionalism in combination with that, meant that you could basically work a, a model of a computer and then claim that it had something to say about the mind. You didn't have to worry too much about you know, how the brain would realize it as long as it could be realized somehow. And again, you wouldn't have to realize and uh, think about how it affects people's experience. Now, the inactive constellation of cognitive science is very different in that respect. It's somehow removing this layer uh, of functional forms, which is almost some kind of platonic realm of logical forms that could in exist independently of anything, and then ask the question of how does the personal level perspective of concern on the world relate with our biological embodiment, including the brain, of course, and then also more widely, including all our language and social cultural structures and so on. So that definitely brings anthropology back into the picture. Mm. That definitely brings in some kind of qualitative studies also, because we have to get a grip on what perspective even means and mm. what experience even means. Um, and also, I feel like it actually does more justice also to the natural sciences in the sense that we're not no longer just looking for a way of like, you know, running a virtual machine on the brain, but we're really asking like, what is the materiality of the brain and its particular physiology? How does that actually shape the structures of our experience uh, without having this intermediate representational layer? Mm. So then, then the, the cognitive science becomes some sort of synoptic integration of insights from all these various disciplines, which it was... Uh, intended initially and maybe there was some success there coherent to itself but um plenty of critique can be leveled at it too um in in our unit um we have a number of projects um can you talk about them broadly or maybe sure. delve yep. into any that you so we've got a few lines um there's the um, line of theoretical development, uh, continuing to you know uh, work on what is actually the conceptual framework that we've been discussing. So, 
Um, we've touched on some of the basic points like biological autonomy and its differences and uh, interaction matters and how to scale that up to specifically human cognition. Um, but there's a lot more work to be done there. And, and um, one key aspect that um, you know we have several people working on is um, uh, how to make room for the perspective, for normativity, you know, for meaning and concern. Uh, to how to fit that into a, in a roughly speaking naturalistic framework, you know. Mm. So it's not magic, but it's definitely also not just something that could be measured by physics, let's say, right? So um, and the traditional take on that, which is the representationalist story, that you have a you know some sort of representational vehicle which has mental content in it, um, that hasn't really played out in, in the way that it was originally proposed. It seems to be uh, running in all kinds of issues. We could make and come back to that later. Um, but we have to tell an alternative story to that, basically. So if you don't buy this traditional cognitive science, then what's our alternative story? Mm. Uh, so there's th that theoretical part, which you know we can call theoretical cognitive science, but some people might call philosophy of mind. Um, and then we have a few experimental uh, lines of research. And I think that um, uh, uh, this is uh, one of our unique advantages, actually, that um, a lot of the work that is done with... Uh, embodied cognition and also particularly with the inactive approach, um, most people actually work on the theoretical side of things. Mm -hmm. Or if they do something extra, it's a little bit of, let's say, simulation work or something like that. Um, but very few people try to take uh, this uh, conceptual framework and see, does it lead to doing better experimental work? Mm -hmm. And so one of the, the, the big ambitions that we have being here at OIS is saying, if we can, you know, uh, take advantage of this, you know, world-class scientific support structure and having all these top-class natural scientists around us to really help us fine-tune our, our methods, uh, maybe we can actually do much better cognitive science than if we adopt the traditional conceptual framework. Mm. Um, and we do that in, uh, in uh, three ways. Uh, one is to look at individual agent-environment interaction. Um, so this is looking at if someone, uh, a person, engages with their environment actively, intentionally, uh, how does that shape their perception of the world compared to when they're actually just being passively driven through that same sensory motor loop. And that's supposed to get us to think about um, the notion of agency and autonomy uh, in an experimental sense. And we're taking all the measurements of their movement and of their physiological activity and eventually also of their brain activity to look at this from all different aspects. So that's at the individual agent environment level. And then uh, we basically add another person into that mix. This will give us a two-person dyadic social interaction. And then we can also ask about um, how does real-time social interaction of the kind that we're doing right now, of talking with each other, for example, how does that uh, change uh, the way we relate to each other and also relate to the world? Um, how does it change our brain dynamics, our body dynamics? Um, what does it mean to say we are doing something together, right? Rather than I am doing something and you are doing something. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a qualitative difference in our experience when the we appears. Um, but what are the conditions of that? And it is a little bit like uh, saying interaction matters in the individual case. But here we go to say social interaction matters. Mm -hmm. So the, um, the working hypothesis is that you won't be able to get a grip on these kind of qualitative shifts in experience of doing something together jointly, we are doing something, uh, if you restrict the unit of analysis to only one individual. Um, we propose that you know the, the unit of analysis must actually be the diet in interaction in order to get a grip on what's going on there. Um, and then this kind of gets scaled up even further to larger social groups 
ultimately actually to all to whole societies. So we want to also take, like zoom out completely. So we have on the one end the single individual, and then on the other extreme we have a, a whole you know um, city or society in interaction with the environment, where we have multitudes of people interacting. And then we can ask what kind of dynamics do they unleash, um, mm. and and how do they get integrated, and how does their complexity get established, um, and. It's interesting that you know the kind of paradigm shift that uh, cognitive science underwent from initially thinking that uh, the mind was a little bit like a chess player, you know, like planning all these moves and you know knowing the rules and having a representation of the game and so on, um, and then it got displaced this, by this much more decentralized, distributed, messy, fluid, dynamic view of of uh, interactive uh, view of the mind. Something like that could also be happening, for example, when we look at the origins of social complexity, where the traditional story was that in order to have any kind of social complexity, you need to have one central controller, you know, the leader that has enough power to tell everybody, you know, to execute their plan, and then they would build the pyramids and build the city and, and all this kind of stuff, right? Now, it looks like um, that's not really what was happening. At least uh, in the very first instances, there was very little evidence that there was such centralized power. Mm. Um, and then the question is, if it wasn't there, then how did they do it, mm. right? Um, and alternatively, you can also ask, even if they did have the power, you know, in the very beginning, how would they even know what to do, given that there was no precedent, right? Mm. So that you know, suggests that even for these kind of larger systems, uh, looking for uh, uh, mechanisms that are self-organizing, self-maintaining, emergent, distributed, uh, might actually give us a much more uh, coherent way of thinking about how this is taking place. Yeah, yeah. And, w and we, when we think like, so we are still a cognitive science unit, right? But we're taking this very broad um, view. But the logic of doing that is to say, well, even as an individual, right? you're thinking in some way on behalf of a city at times, right? Mm -hmm, There's sure. something about being in the city that is constitutive of the way you relate to yourself and to others. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe embodied cognitive science and an act of uh, theorizing in particular starts to give us some sort of vocabulary to acknowledge that scaling. That's very nice, yeah. So we can look at it being integrated in that way. These are actually like nested scales of description. Yeah. So if you really want to understand the human mind, we actually do have to understand how it's integrated in its technological environment, how it's integrated with uh, uh, the interaction with other people around it, and with how those interactions with the tools and other people are integrated in the larger social cultural systems in which we're embedded. Yeah, I mean, this seem, you know this has obviously significant um, cultural, ecological, um, political implications even. Um, and maybe we can kind of, get to some of that towards the end of the conversation but um i guess another another um interest of yours is uh this question of consciousness mm -hmm. um do you want to talk about that and, and try and maybe put it in that story you tell or just talk about it as its own thing or yeah let's see um I think the the best way to start thinking about consciousness um, is to, to actually think about what we said about the basic life and normativity and having a perspective of concern. Mm. Um, so uh, oftentimes uh, consciousness um, is thought of a kind of representation of the external world. Um, so it's something on the inside that reflects something that's on the outside and that which is reflected is the world as let's say it would be described by physics. 
you know, with objects and positions and, you know, um, I don't know, in a three-dimensional space with things changing over time. Um, that's the kind of, let's say, scientific or even scientific view of what human experience is about. Because if we start become a little bit aware more of how we experience the world, um, what's in the foreground is how things matter to us, what we can do with them, how we can interact with them. You know, the chair is something for sitting on. The table is something I couldn't put my water on. You're a person that I can talk with. Um, and yes, if I wanted to, I can kind of like zoom out for a moment and say, well, the, the table is like 40 centimeters in front of me, right? And, and kind of start to do it a little bit more of a scientific attitude to it and try to, you know, extract these kind of objective properties from it. Um, but that's not how primarily the world shows up. And so uh, why is it the case that, you know, this meaning of the world for our action potentials is in the forefront? Well, it goes all the way back to that little, you know, single cell organism that has to go up the sugar gradient, mm. right? Those show up for it as relevant because without them, it wouldn't even be able to exist in the first place. Right. And in our case, it's not necessarily tied to metabolic existence, but it's tied to our way of life, our habits, coming back to that story. Yeah, it is obviously equally tied to our metabolic existence, right? But not only tied to that. Yeah. So so what you're saying is um, this kind of, uh, say, organizational constitution prefigures a certain relationship to the world such that certain things stand out as kind of relevant. That's right. Yeah. So uh, I quite like Albanoi's uh, take on this uh, when he says um, consciousness is the world showing up. Mm. Right. And but it's the world showing up as our life world, not as the world described by physics. So is this in this view, is consciousness a relational notion? Um, is it something that exists in the relationship between my, between person and world, between organism and environment? Um, yeah, that's the that's the idea actually. So again, interaction matters, um, and uh, and and it doesn't just causally matter. You know, most people would say if there's nothing impinging on your senses, well, then you wouldn't experience the world. Okay, we can at least there's a common agreement that you know some kind of basic interaction must be necessary. But I want to go further than that and say that um, it doesn't just stop at your sensory surfaces. You know, mm. it's not in the brain. It's not in your sensory surface. It, it really involves the relationship you have with the environment around around you. Um, and if that relationship changes, it can change for various kinds of reasons. It can change because your brain changes. It can change because your body changes. But it can also change because the world changes. Uh, and any of these changes would then mean a change in how you're experiencing things. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's a very, to my point of view, that's a it's a kind of liberating st- you know, view of consciousness, because the other view, which says that you could be having all this experience, even if the interaction didn't take place the way that you experience it, uh, you know, has this kind of like, you know, extreme skepticism built into it such that, well, you could be living in the matrix or maybe the world just popped into existence or maybe, you know, it's you're just a brain in a vat and all these kinds of thought experiments. They're only possible if you think that you could be having this experience as you're having it right now even if the interaction wasn't taking place. Mm. So if you're on the right track and actually saying that mind to some extent is intelligent action in the world, you know, embodied action in the world, well, then those thought experiments don't make actually any sense. Um, mm. There would be counterfactual conditions on which you would notice that things are actually different. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, so something you uh, you talk, talked about a lot recently in this conversation around consciousness um, is this notion of eruption, right? There's 
so maybe you can make a helpful distinction here because this is a question maybe I've had for you as well and maybe now is a good time to talk about it. Um, often a kind of somewhat agreed upon uh, grasping at consciousness um, within philosophy of mind is is uh, Nagel's notion of there's something it's like to be, right? That there is some qualitative dimension to some sort of um, biophysical system, um, biopsychophysical system maybe. And and then there's this other component, right, that you bring in, which is subjectivity, right? There's 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 something that can make a difference in the world um, that is 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 best captured uh, thinking about something like a conscious agent, right? Um, so, do you distinguish those two, and what's the relationship between them? Um, and then, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by this notion of eruption? Right. Um, let, let's just uh, take this uh, step by step. I think it's useful to unpack this a little bit slowly. So what would be the traditional cognitive science way of thinking about this? Um, so it would be something like, you know, um, the fact that I see a red bottle on the table is constituted um, by having um, a neural mental, you know, neurally implemented mental representation of a red bottle in my visual cortex, let's say. And maybe there's a structural correspondence even there that there's almost like a little red bottle, you know, almost in the neural activity imprinted in my visual cortex. Um, uh, so, so that's the kind of classic story. And there's, there's lots of questions we can ask about it. Um, but one of them uh, is, so even if we were granting um, that there is such a uh, correlation, um, and we could even say, okay, we agree that this could be a representation, but then if you look closely and ask the neuroscientists to say, well, how are these neurons going to fire next? Um, they would not necessarily uh, appeal to a red bottle on the table. You know, they would look at electrical potentials. They would look at chemical gradients. They would look at, uh, you know, what's, what's the state of the neurons around? What's the connectivity and so on? But that's all kind of like messy neurophysiology. And, you know, you can talk about that using the principles of physics you don't in there get anything close to something like a human experience making a difference, mm. right? Um, so the, the, it's kind of like an explanation of how we experience that if it was working, it would make the experience completely epiphenomenal, you know? That, yeah, it goes along with something that uh, is happening there, but that could just run its course on its own without any experience being there at all. So again, it's a, similar to this kind of internalism that I was talking about before. It's, again, a kind of dehumanizing notion of consciousness, actually. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, we can try to make room for it, but only at the cost of making it completely, you know, useless. Right. Um, Which would be a real injury in our science, right? <laughs> That's where it led us to. Right, right. Yeah, so, yeah, and we have to remember, like I said before, that first and foremost, you know, we're situated in this life world, right? That's how we experience things. And then we are, we can engage in scientific practice that extract objective properties out of that. Mm. But then somehow we kind of get lost a little bit and then we, we make that extracted property actually the primary foundation for all of our experiences and forgetting that it's actually a derived, uh, you know, abstraction um, that exists only because we got rid of all the qualitative elements, right? right. Uh, so we have to be very careful with, with that move. Right, and there's there's also the the fact that, say, your position, you're not wanting to deny that this activity is there and that it's somehow correlated with something that we'll call experience. Right. Um, it's just we haven't thought about it. Uh, we haven't given it its substantive framing. Right. If, if that's what we limit it yeah. to. Yeah. 
in fact, you know, this this motivation is what led me to eruption theory because the let's say most of my my career and my colleagues, um, when they argue against the representational story as as uh, unsatisfactory, um, they they adopt a dynamical systems approach instead, and they just basically say. In order to explain what's going on here, I only need to know, you know, what what are the equations describing the activity of these neurons when you know the organism is in interaction with a red <coughs> bottle or something mm -hmm. like that. Let's say, mm -hmm. right? Um, but although that removes the problem of trying to explain how this mental content could be related to the neural activity, it actually doesn't solve the problem of the impotence of the experience. On that view, the best you could argue for is something like identity theory, where and uh, now it's no longer a mental supervenience of some subjective experience on top of the neural substrate. You would have to say there's a dual aspect to it, that maybe there's activity there, and on the other hand, you have experience. Um, but still, it's not like the experience as such would make any difference to how the um, the neural activity is unfolding. So, so, so what you're saying is in the dynamic stance, um, you get the interactive component, mm -hmm. but you don't get the kind of qualitative component. That's right. So time starts to matter. Interaction starts to matter. You can um, look at this as a system. Uh, mm. You know, it's no longer like these monadic components of you know well-defined representations and so on. Right. So there are a lot of advantages to it. But, um, but for you, it's still too deterministic. Deterministic, and also it doesn't clearly show us why we would need consciousness at all. You know, mm. if I can tell the whole story in purely dynamical systems term, again, we're making consciousness phenomenal. Mm. Right then, we're again no long nothing other than just planets moving around their orbits. It's just that you know, m you know, um, we're using the same kind of mathematical framework we describe their motions to describe the activity or behavior of what it ha what's happening in with our bodies. Mm. So then, eruption theory really is a kind of break in my career where I said that's not good enough uh, for me. You know, okay, I, I, there are big problems with representationalism, but you know, dynamical systems approach solves some of them, but not all of them. So this is, in a way, a bit of a departure from the existing inactive uh, methodologies to say that it's not, it's not quite getting us where we need to get with this. That's right. Yeah. So traditionally, the kind of uh, embodied cognition that we're working with in this unit, the inactive approach, has been very strongly wedded to a dynamical systems approach. And it, I think it's still there. It's still useful. But um, we basically need to move from this kind of more deterministic dynamical system paradigm to one that's a bit more stochastic, non-deterministic. And that's where the, the, the eruption theory comes in, um, in the sense that, um, you know, there's a spectrum of possibilities here. The representations, to some extent, is adding something extra into nature, which is the, the mental content, which is the representation, and say, here I'm carving out this bunch of neurons, these are a representation of something in the world. Right, so they are adding some. It's like nature plus. You know, there's something with nature, and then there's extra stuff when we come when it comes to the mind. The dynamical systems approach kind of like clears the the you know that equation says no, we don't need anything extra. We can just mm -hmm. talk about the dynamics. Um, but then I'm saying that actually that doesn't still doesn't allow us to talk about mind in the right kind of way. So maybe in order to make space for mind and nature, what we really need to do is remove uh, uh, you know determination. Um, and, and that's the idea of eruption, that to some extent, the signature of subjectivity making a difference in our behavior, if we were to look at it using objective lenses, you know, we're asking questions about physiology and, you know, electrical potentials and all this kind of thing, which intrinsically is not subjective, right? Um, then that influence will actually show up as those processes having less 
role to play in terms of their future behavior. Mm. And they're being underdetermined. Um, the past physical state of the system um, plays less of a role for knowing what is going to happen next. Mm. And we know that to be true to some extent. You know, if I wanted to understand what you're going to say next, the easiest way is to ask you, you know, mm. what are you going to say next, Mark? <laughs> right? Uh, and if I just looked into your brain and tried to, try to work it out that way, it would be extremely hard, if not impossible. Right, right. So do is there at this point... Um, so eruption then means something about a break in this exactly. determinate system, yeah. otherwise determinate system. That's right. So is there some sense in which there is a degree of determined outcome mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> which makes sense for a biochemical system? Mm -hmm. um, but there's something about consciousness that erupts, mm -hmm. right? breaks through all of that, and uh, somehow you know, introduces a change in that system. That's right. Um, and uh, it fits very nicely with all the things that we've been discussing. So to some extent, it is a continuation of the previous work. It's not a complete break with what the kind right, of an active right, tradition right. we've Just maybe a break with some of the kind of mathematical framing. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's nice because we've already talked about habits and we talked about self-organization and, you know, um, you know the kind of semi-automaticity that, you know, habits uh, uh, and self-maintenance bring with them. And so... When I say eruption, I really do mean that all, uh, the only way in which subjectivity can express itself uh, or is expressed in, in the physical domain is in terms of underdetermination of physical factors that ha happen to play a role otherwise. But that's a far stretch from saying that that could be a useful difference, right? I mean, it makes a difference. But basically, if it just kills you or you just start flopping around chaotically or mm -hmm. randomly, well, that's mm -hmm. not really uh, what's what's good, right? Um but it seems like that our, our bodies are actually set up in such a way that sometimes being perturbed in this kind of uh, stochastic way is actually precisely the way in which we can be flexible and adaptive. Mm. It's like our whole organism has these, uh, is a network of habits um, that just need to be tipped off and then they more or less unfold on their own terms. Mm. Um, and so it's like the mind, you know, uh, is, is the, just the trigger to some extent. Mm. Um, and it's kind of interesting in a sense that it means that we have to have a kind of implicit faith or trust that our body knows what we want to do. And, you know, uh, you can just reflect upon this in your own experience. You don't have any control over the muscles in your arm when you reach for something. You just trust that your arm is going to grab the bottle. Right, right, right. right, right. So how is that possible, right? Um, mm. um, but basically eruption theory says that, um, you know, there is an impulse of some kind there. There's a subjective intention um, but the only way in which that subjective intention can be realized is by causing an, a break with the pre-existing trajectories, physical trajectories that are occurring in your body, and then triggering the right kind of uh, habits uh, to like unfold uh, the physical process in a new direction. Mm. Yeah, I remember in conversation about this before, and it was, it was just kind of coming back to me there, was this idea that there's a break <clears throat> that, um, in a sense allows for, so it's, it's it's like it allows for the proper attunement to 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 take place right mm -hmm. so it's, you know we slow down and you know that's a, a language we use colloquially but it's also a language that's used um in a lot of even cultural social and cultural movements where there's a kind of impetus towards a better kind of more encompassing attunement right mm -hmm. so we slow down and that's almost in a way what you're talking about but this happens on a more 
micro level, right? There's a kind of slowing down and then the person is better able to attune to whatever it is that they're doing. So that the habits sort of come forth, the right habits kind of come forth mm-hmm. in this moment. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you're talking about slowing down. It makes me think that uh, maybe another kind of uh, lesson to be learned from this would be that it's not just about slowing down, but it's about setting the right conditions, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, given that we are not in control of our actual actions in the sense that I cannot determine how my, my muscles will move and I cannot even determine exactly which words will come out of my mouth next, right? Yeah. Um, so that's just bubbling up spontaneously, spontaneous activity all the time. So it's a matter of cultivation, right? So right. it's a kind of thing, the kind of person that I want to be, I have to practice at being that person mm. such that when I'm in the situation, spontaneously, my interactions unfold in the way that I'm happy with. Mm. Yeah, and that that is a practice outcome, right? And there's still some... There's still a lot of contingency there. You can practice that over and over and over again. Right. And it's not always guaranteed. So let's not be so harsh with us ourselves either. Yeah. Yeah. And this is particularly important, I think, when we think about things like psychology, right? Or psychology is a a broad term, but like when we think about um, our own behavior, right? Or habit change or behavior change or um, why did I act that way in that situation? And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the time we might have a tendency to beat up on ourselves or whatever the case is. And what you're saying is there's all these kind of set of conditions outside of our control a lot of the time mm-hmm. that are oriented us in a particular way. But maybe through this act, right, maybe we can harness this capacity for slowing down or for erupting, maybe mm-hmm. um, expand our consciousness, even right to use those terms. And become sensitive to what are the conditions in which certain actions are more probable mm-hmm. and start to harness and cultivate that. Yeah. And um, yeah, we should also remember that um, uh, interaction matters to come back to that slogan, right? So it's not even just about training your own body or your own mental habits. Um, but um, a lot of the times uh, what you experience and how these things unfold cannot be separated from the environment that you find mm-hmm. yourself in right. or the context that you find yourself in. Uh, being around some people will be empowering, while being around other people will be disempowering. Right. And that will be partially out of your control. Um, and so we need to choose our environments very wisely, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you know, the picture you, the nested picture you built up earlier on of the thinking person in the city mm-hmm. and seeing the two is intimately connected. Um, that's that's a That's a nice image to kind of hold in mind when we're thinking about something like one's own state of mind, right? So the notions of mental health that are, say, popular in a, in a, in a kind of traditional discourse are challenged here a bit, right? Because we're starting to say, well, mental health is a manifestation of um, possibly your own capacity to slow down and do the right thing, but mm-hmm. also uh, this momentum that has been, um, I suppose, encouraged by modulators or whatever whatever the right language is in your environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's very interesting to think about uh, how we're how these different processes are actually incorporated into our embodiment and how mm-hmm. they incorporate into our habits. Um, there's there's a lot of interesting work that can definitely be done there in terms of mental health and and, and well being and um, yeah. You, you mentioned politics at some point, but also politically speaking, you know, it's it's a sensitive topic, but. How does the environment affect people's freedom and their yeah. choices and so on, right? Yeah. And I think we're charting an interesting middle course that, you know, you're not completely at the mercy of your environment, mm. but you're also not completely, you know, self-autonomous. Mm. It's a mixture of the two. 
Mm. Um, and the best you can do is just plan for the long term to some extent. You know, each moment, you can't really be fully in control of how you're going to behave. Right. But what you can do uh, is, you know, slowly, um, you know, change the conditions such that, um, you know, you cultivate the kind of exp experiences and the kind of behaviors that you would like to have. Right, right. Yeah, this this does get us into that kind of larger topic, right? Like ecology and culture and uh, all of those concerns. Um, and like you're saying, it seems to maybe I, I don't want to you know this is not either of our areas as such so i don't want to be be too um overconfident in in my kind of speculations here but um i do think a, a lot of tension emerges in political conversation um from this kind of binary stance right it's either the individual or it's either structural mm -hmm. um <clears throat> and a lot of things kind of break down in that way right we've seen recently with the pandemic you know it's all about individual health, take your vitamin D, you know, do your exercise and other people, you know, just take the vaccine, God damn it, whatever. This is a, this is a public health issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a whole kind of discourse that exists between those two extremes um, and some feeling somewhere that, oh, there's kind of something right about both, both ends or whatever. And the, the kind of pictures that we've had of um, individual psychology maybe up until this point or up until relatively recently, and certainly the kind of picture that is in the public discourse is the kind of picture that supports that confusion, right? You have individuals over here and you have society and you have an individual mental activity that's, there's no real continuity with social structure or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but the kind of picture we're attempting to build seems to be one that maybe reduces some of those tensions a little bit because mm -hmm. it says here's the continuities and it retains a sense of individual agency in some way, right? So um, people who are concerned about that might be happy. Mm -hmm. And it, it also um, emphasizes the, 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 the conditioning part. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another debate that I think fits in here quite nicely and that has to do with how should we regulate social media? You know, and it's a it's a very large debate. You know, there's a lot of um, let's say um, anxiety about how let's say you know social media platforms can influence even democratic elections and things like that. You know, um, and uh, if you phrase that debate in terms of the classical view of the mind of a physical simple processor inside the brain. Mm. Well, then your main concerns might be fake news and like information overload or something like that. But now think about what we're saying is that uh, the way in which the world shows up to us or the way we perceive others in, in the world or even ourselves is actually constituted by the interactions we have. And what these social media platforms are, are interaction tools. Right. Right. So it's much more insidious than anybody really thinks about. It's like they really go to the core of who we are, you know, which is our way of life and how we interact with the world and shape the experiences in that way from the inside. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a much more pressing problem than has even been realized. Um, and to some extent, the depth of the problem is hidden if you assume that actually the mind is encapsulated in your brain and, mm -hmm. and, and is not mm -hmm. extending into these interaction processes. Yeah, yeah, very good. So the, the, the kind of their ability to, in a sense, um, shape the emergent whole um, 
is really pronounced, right? Because they have control over what the variables are through which we interact. So they've really, they can narrow the mediation or expand it in whatever way um, works. But generally it's whatever works for them and to keep them as a sustainable business or whatever, which is no real concern a lot of the time for actually what the emergent whole is. Right. And it, this brings us back to what I said about the emergence of social complexity, you know, in, in archaeological terms, where, you know, there was a point when there was these new forms of social life, you know, cities, urbanism, and so on, um, which had never been tried out before in human history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the first people who lived there didn't know what to do with that, right? And they, there was no precedent for having to run a city. What institutions do you need? How do you organize people right, and right, so on, right? Right. right. Um, I think we're in a kind of similar situation a little bit with this, you know, hugely influential social media platform and also with the climate crisis that's happening at the same time where we don't actually have a good idea of how we should do things better. It's so high dimensional, so complex, so many interested parties that even if someone had the power and said, I'm going to, you know, in, you know make a law that, you know, climate change cannot happen anymore. Well, what would you do about it? You know, how would you actually implement everything such that, you know, um, we can lead a sustainable life on this planet? Mm. So that makes me think again that um, although it's uncomfortable, uh, we might need to think a little bit about um, how decentralized are our decision-making processes, right? Mm. Like think of the brain, right? 80 billion neurons, and it brings forth in our interaction this nice, you know, coherent conversation <coughs> But there's no little humunculus inside that controls all the neurons and how they behave. And yet still, we're getting like, you know, a good conversation happening, right? So, you know, our political systems are built like the classical vision of, you know, cognitive science. <laughs> I was right? say, yeah, the there's a central thing. controller, you know, and there's some memory banks and there's some rules. And then you apply all of that and then, you, you know, top down control all the other, other mm. actors. Yeah. Um, but we know that that for complex adaptive systems, you know, and for changing environments and so on, that's a very brittle way of, mm. uh, of doing things. Mm. So presumably, in reality, there's much more else going on in the background that doesn't actually fit this kind of top-down narrative anyway. Mm. Um, but yeah, still, uh, you know, at least when we're looking at it from the outside, it seems like, you know, there's a central controller who has the power and the knowledge of how to arrange all the components in mm. this complex system. Yeah, yeah. I think that's something, for me at least, I've seen in the context of the pandemic um, unfold in a way that's been kind of heartwarming, right? Like, I think before this experience, growing up in Ireland, in particularly in the in the West and the South of Ireland, where it was pretty chill, you know, I hadn't encountered so much uh, anything at a global scale that was really kind of earth-shaking, um, so I, I kind of lived with this uh, Lord of the Flies type, you know, if if the kind of stuff hits the fan, well, then we're just going to start eating each other, basically, and uh, uh, had had no real, you know, intuitions to kind of test that against. Um, but what we saw, at least locally in Ireland under the, under the pandemic, and from what I've heard in most places where it didn't become super politicized super quickly... Um, is this kind of local organizing, right? These kind of uh, communities of care springing up, uh, whether it was on a road, whether it was in a kind of small town or a village, um, where people were just self-organizing to look after each other and take care of people who were vulnerable. And um, there is a genuine sense in which we've never really given that a good shot, right? We've never unfolded that experiment at scale. Um, 
and and part of that is maybe because we didn't have the technologies to support it and right. uh, things along those lines. Whether we do now, whether we will in the future is yet to be seen. But I, I, I do hear a lot of conversation around Web 3.0 and decentralization. And all of it sounds very promising. All of it sounds like what the web kind of initially promised at the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's a definitely an interesting conversation to be had that I think... Uh, you know, maybe we'll, we should take it over a beer somewhere instead of like doing on the on the podcast. Um, but uh, you know, one just like you know, bit of warning maybe is that um, we need to be careful not to to romanticize self-organization too much, mm-hmm. um, because to some extent, you know, extreme free market principles appeal to this kind of thing too, right? So you know, it's like survival of the fittest. If you can't make it, well, then you know, you just go out of business, and you know, there shouldn't be any regulations, and let just the market like arrange itself and so on. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't worked out too well for people either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and a complete planned economy also hasn't really worked out too well, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, maybe you know, there there might be a, again again a need to think about what's the middle ground, um, yeah. Yeah. and and um, you know. How can we combine the best of the local and the global in a, in a coherent right, way? Right. Yeah, because there's a need right at this point to monitor and regulate certain things more than we ever have, um, because otherwise we, you know, debase our own kind of substructure. We get to a point where we don't have the resources to continue life on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least most of us don't. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, there's there's definitely some sort of kind of dual system that's going to be required at least. Mm-hmm. From our speculation sitting here. Um, yeah. Um, maybe an interesting question to put to you is what you see as, um, or what you foresee as challenges, you know, unique challenges that are presented to us in our attempts to do embodied cognitive science. Um, wow. There are many. Um so we're definitely sticking out our necks uh, in, in more than ways than one. Um, uh, so, you know, to actually demonstrate uh, in which way interactions matter is not an easy task. Um, you know, it's not the traditional toolbox of psychology or neuroscience that's required here, but you have to bring in some kind of systems perspective. You need to be comfortable with working with nonlinear time series analysis and so on. Um, so it, and and that's in addition to all the usual statistics and so on and human subjects research protocols and so we are actually you know expanding you know what the training needs to be of students and staff before they can even you know actually do proper work with these kinds of system. So that's definitely like a you know the entry point is much higher now than it used to be in cognitive science. Um, and then there's also this point that. Um, you know, there's this replication crisis going on in psychology, right? So we're not the only ones that uh, are a little bit on shaky grounds. Also, traditional science is on shaky grounds. But, mm, you know, what's maybe a challenge for them could be an opportunity for us, right? So if you're on the right track and saying that how people behave requires this, like, in you know, a multiple nested scale from, you know, what's going on in their gut for, what, because they ate, you know, for lunch up the, all the way up from what kind of cultural system or family background do they come all of those factors will be, you know, somehow modulating, you know, how they behave. So, uh, and then there's also eruption theory of consciousness that says, you know, there, there might be some processes, you know, that actually are unpredictable in principle, uh, if you include agency in the picture. And so, 
Um, what what that replication crisis might point to actually is that you know psychology is a probabilistic science for a reason. Um, you know, it's it's not we can't treat people like billiard balls. Mm. Um, and if we did, we would basically miss the essence of what it means to be human. Mm. But then the question is, how do you do science with that, right? Mm. Um, and and physics took a long time to shift from a kind of more billiard ball picture to a much more probabilistic, you know, really intrinsically probabilistic framework, where they then said, well. Let's just take the uncertainty and work with it and just, you know, uh, assume that it's there, you know, and it's not something that we can remove, but it's part of how nature is. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, th I think that, you know, we need to do a similar kind of conceptual shift in cognitive science. Uh, we really need to accept that there's something intrinsically unpredictable and deterministic about um, uh, agents. And, mm. yeah, but that, you know, that would change a lot of things. Um, and, you know, it, it's not clear exactly how that how that will will turn out, and then there's just this kind of thing that um, if you're on the right track of this you know embodied situated nature of, of of agency, well, then you know where do you draw the limits, right? Uh, suddenly we need to study everything, you know, everything yeah. from right. you know the material composition of our bodies to which kind of political systems we're integrated in, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's impossible for anybody to do you know a, a justice to, um, and so we will have to carve it up somehow. Right. And how we carve it up, that will be, you know, those will, it's, it's an open question, actually. You know, yeah, we, yeah. where are the cut points where we can say, you know, well, if we carve the system out of this way, then we will lose, you know, this, this, but, or increase this variability and so on. Um, so a holistic perspective, properly done, is hard work. Right. It, it forces us to be philosophical in a way that maybe... You could you you could situate yourself in say cognitive psychology and just adopt its um, its methods and so on and just kind of do what it's doing, but here we're kind of a bit more forced to say okay what's the right grain of analysis and then what is the right kind of set of conditions that we need to speak about this phenomenon within and all of those are decisions mm -hmm. at the point of the researcher right mm -hmm. that's right yeah. So it's definitely, you know, uh, frontier science uh, in, in many ways. So, but to my mind, that's what makes this unit so exciting, right? Um, it's high risk, but also high gain because, you know, for all the different reasons that we touched on, um, you know, uh, our understanding, scientific understanding of the mind uh, is absolutely essential for so many areas of our life, you know, ranging from mental health to how to organize our political systems, uh, for example, or social media, or whatever, all these different topics we talked about, mm. that if our scientific concept of how the mind works is fundamentally flawed for some reason, for example, it's not a you know internal computer in our brain, but actually you know is open in the world and makes the world show up, and you know all the difference that we talked about, well, that changes everything, right? That changes how we think about designing our living spaces. That changes uh, changes how we think about education. That changes about how we should think about the influence of social media on people. Um, you know, it changes about, you know, how we should treat uh, uh, mental disorders, uh, how we should design the next interface, you know, what's the role of technology in all of this. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of things in stake. So, so basically, mm. yes, a lot of uncertainty at the moment because we're really pushing forward into a direction that hasn't been thoroughly explored before. Um, but given the kind of um, sometimes rather, you know, negative implications of the traditional view of the mind, um, I think this is, you know, worth a shot. Um, and uh, if we can show that this way of looking at the mind not only does better science, but maybe also leads to better tech applications or better ways of dealing mm. with uh, well-being and mental health, mm. um, well, then the, then this will all have been worthwhile.
Yeah, it certainly seems in in some some domains the application is more evident, you know, more um, hastily evident, or you can see it uh, immediately. And then it, there's a lot yet to be figured out. Um, I'm wondering about like, do you still see uh, do you still see a role for say more classically kind of reductive observations or scientific practice um, within this kind of framework that we're talking about? that can then be somehow kind of reframed or, or resituated? Um, or is it a sense of like, well, we just have to throw out all of the neuroscientific findings for the last however long? And because that doesn't seem right, right? Like, mm-hmm. like there's a lot of good work done there. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but then if there's a lot of good work done there, are we not just doing that same thing and kind of continuing that and maybe giving it a little bit of philosophy? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think there's there's definitely a sense in which we this could be a, an interesting project in its own right of thinking about doing the kind of philosophy of science, philosophy of science. But I was also thinking a comparative project and saying what what can we keep, what what has to go, uh, what is arbitrary due to the premises that were adopted during that research, but or what are facts that you know stand on their own legs, you know. Yeah. Um, I I think that. Uh, there's there's definitely a sense of continuity in that in that this kind of cognitive science that we're doing wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the precursors, right? right. So there's a sense in that we we you know the, even the very idea that six disciplines could be working together and asking the same questions and just applying different tools to it is there, right? You know we're, we're we're continuing in that tradition, right. and I think all we're doing is saying that what we've learned ever you know coming out of those early days from the 70s and or even earlier. Um, you know, is, you know, we, we need this different, slightly different constellation of disciplines. We need to uh, have a slightly different systemic point of view and, and so on. It's really not a complete break in that sense, but an organic evolution of cognitive science um, that as we learn more about the limitations of the very narrow definition of the computational theory of mind, we're basically adding more and more layers of complexity to it. Um, and uh, yeah, it seems like we still haven't finished adding mm-hmm. all of them yet. Yeah, yeah. There's one, say, uh, history of cognitive scientific practice um, that is has a has a kind of a a longer history um, than an action per se, and also has quite a strong experimental uh, history, and to this day is, I think, by and large understood as a as a you know primarily experimental um, undertaking. That's ecological psychology, and I, I wonder what your thoughts are about the possibilities of um, that as a kind of model. Or what are the limitations of that as a as a model? Um, um, what do you see going forward? The kind of overlap between ecological, and I know this discussion kind of goes on a bit, and can go in a million different directions, and uh-huh. there's a lot of things to say. But just from a kind of methodological stance, that, that's true. I mean, uh, it's an important question in the sense that. Uh, in, in, I, I said there's not much experimental work done um, in this kind of embodied tradition that, that we're working <coughs> in. Um, but ecological psychology is an alternative where it's been very much focused on you know the best practices in psychology and also doing time series analysis and all these things. Um, so it's important to to think about you know how we stand with, in respect to each other, and there's a lot of interesting work there. So so my personal take on it is that um, what 
the inactive tradition is very good and is talking about you know agency autonomy um it's very good at talking about the experience of things like you know the quality of perception like why does this feel like you know touch rather than seeing something you know the kind of sensory motor approach is very interesting there um, but it has been less concerned with looking out into the world and saying, you know, what are the conditions under which I perceive an object in front of me as an object, for example. And that's the kind of work that ecological psychology is much better suited at doing, and it's experimentally so. So the kind of invariances that they uncover in terms of optic flow and then, you know, the, you know, calculating time to contact and things like that, it seems like they're picking up on the structures of relationships that underlie our ability to pick up on objective properties of the world. Mm -hmm. So it's like almost like they are kind of complementary in that sense. Whereas the inactive approach has been mainly interested in the feel of things, you know, the quality of things and, you know, the meaning of things and so on. Um, you know, ecological psychology has been very good at uh, saying, for example, what does it require for me to perceive the length of something or mm -hmm. the, the width of something or the height of something or, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so, but both of these together constitute our, our experience of the world. We can pick up on both of these sides of things. So mm. actually they're kind of complementary in that sense. One thing to say though is that um, they also have relatively little say to about what the brain does in the, all of this, right? It's, it's for example, the, the optic flow, uh, you know, you calculate it in terms of the rate of change of, you know, uh, on top of your retina or something like that. Um, but, you know, if, if that's all there is to the story, um, then you know where, first of all where's the environment you know because that change could be induced in all caused in all kinds of ways not necessarily just by the approaching ob uh, object and on the, on the other hand where, where's the agent here you know because if i just use the camera uh, and approach an object to the camera it would also have a similar effect that you know there would be a change in you know the amount of visual space <coughs> that would be occupied by the approaching object mm. so yeah they're picking up on something important but to some extent, the two key things that, for, that interest me the most, which is, you know, what is an agent and how does the world uh, appear, um, you know, are not directly addressed by this. You know, they're, they're working at the interface, but somehow, you know, how something like that kind of change could appear to some agent as something that they experience happening in the world, um, you know, that it still requires further unpacking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And definitely the brain will also have to come into that story. Mm -hmm. um, and in our unit, like one of the innovations um, that, that I think we're doing is that for all the experimental work that has been done in the inactive tradition, it has been mainly um, like movement science, mm -hmm. right? You know, looking at uh, how people interact with, uh, you know, sensory substitution interfaces or, um, you know, um, you know in, in social interactions like the body language or, or things like that. Um, but there has been very little work done on the brain. I mean, Varela did it originally in, in, you know, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but even there, it was almost like a break that on the one hand, he, he was a neuroscientist. And on the other hand, he was a philosopher working on, on, on the inactive approach. And um, it's not so clear how these two lines of research were intersecting um, even then. Okay. Yeah, this brings me to kind of maybe we'll start winding it down pretty soon. But um. The con conversation around um, brains and bodies, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the one claim in an action is that, um, say, for instance, that the, the body operates at a different time scale than, say, the sh short-term activity of the brain. Uh, and that in that relationship, you can have a, a kind of a entrainment from body to brain um, <clears throat> that gets at a kind of constitutive notion of embodied cognition, what it means to say the body 
um, is shaping the dynamics of brain. Um, but then we also have brain activity. We also have, say, the gut-brain axis. We also have activity going on in the gut. We have hormones. We have all these things. Um, I think we've yet to venture into that territory, right, and give it a, a substantive um, treatment from an active stance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there are two. So classically, I think that when people thought about the relationship between the brain and the body, it often had to do with uh, uh, offloading uh, computation. So this is notion of morphological computation. Um, and uh, uh, Rolf Pfeiffer, one of the persons who, who developed this uh, concept, you know, had the example that you know if I was to swing my arm, you know, the joints of the arm are such that I can't swing much backwards because of my shoulder and my elbow, right? But if I just give it an impulse, then basically the trajectory is towards my mouth. Mm. So like the basic process of feeding yourself mm. is somehow pre, you know, figured by the the structure, the skeletal and muscular structure of your body. So the brain doesn't have to do much processing there. It needs to provide energy, but then just a push, so to speak, and the arm left its own devices, but more or less followed the right trajectory. Mm. So it doesn't have to be like controlled, you know, the whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this notion of constraints is interesting, but I think that the, um, the alternative is that we should think of the body as opening up new degrees of freedom for the brain, right? A brain that would just be a brain in a vat, you know, of course it would have some spontaneous activity, but my guess is that, you know, the diversity of states that it could enter would be extremely limited mm. compared to a brain that's like in our body right now having this conversation, for example. Right. So actually having uh, the brain in the body is not just that it's, you know, decreasing, you know, the control problem of the body. It's kind of the opposite. It's actually, you know, opening a huge set of degrees of freedom that would be otherwise uh, closed off. And then, of course, inside the body, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the interactions with all the hormones and so on. That's a whole new area of research that's unfolding, like the gut-brain axis and so on, which is extremely exciting to see unfold. And it's a little bit of pity that, um, you know, and body cognition kind of missed the boat a little bit. And, you know, we could have said a lot about that, even for from a first principle kind of way of saying, hey, we already think that metabolism and cognition are intrinsically related and these kinds of things. And therefore, we expect that in the future, someone will find that, you know, even the metabolites in your in your stomach will somehow affect whether you're feeling social or not that day, you know, that mm. kind of stuff. Mm. Nobody really said it. Um, and now almost, you know, by chance, people are starting to realize that, hey, there's all these interactions um, between uh, the immune system and the stomach and the gut system and all of these other processes happening there such that, you know, even the bacteria in your stomach emit, you know, chemicals that are like, you know, neurotransmitters and things like that. So, um, but, you know, okay, they, they found it. That's great. You know, like, so we, it kind of fits with the idea of body cognition. So, and now we have a huge body of work to, 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 to work with. And I think if we can come in there with this rich conceptual framework of how the mind is embodied and, and what we expect these like codependencies to actually you know be all about yeah. um, there again it would be huge applications because you know people are trying to think about what kind of mental disorders might be related with this you know it has questions about well-being and so on um, so that's one of the the really hot areas where um, and it's another area where embodied cognition could actually meet really natural sciences at their best and, mm. and have a very genuine dialogue that could be mutually beneficial yeah, I think Dehan's um, integrative model is kind of helpful here. And I know it has its detractors, but <clears throat> as 
a kind of initial framing where the philosophy somehow adds value to the scientific insight, right? There, there's a sense in which, um, for the listeners, uh, Seneca Dahan is a philosopher, I believe, who works um, in the area of uh, psychiatry and recently published a book uh, entitled An Act of Psychiatry. And she has this integrative model where she highlights um, it's really an extension of the kind of biopsychosocial model that has been popular for a long time, but she adds an extra dimension, what she calls existential, and then gives an account of the kind of causal integration of these various dimensions. Um, but just in a, a kind of very pragmatic sense, you know, the value of that uh, to either a client or a practitioner in the context of psychotherapeutic intervention is just that, like, we go, have you looked over here, right? So <laughs> we resist reduction and we kind of get a better mapping of the space of possibilities for intervention, for treatment and for a diagnosis, right? It's It may not be that there's... Um, some deficiency in the neurotransmitter. It may be that the neurotransmitter in this larger context needs to change or the context itself needs to change. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what uh, at least just the scientific or the philosophical framing as it already exists can bring to these insights that have been produced in the natural sciences around gut-brain axis and so on and so forth um, and really you know, bring the full value out in them in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we were thinking about, you know, um, what can we bring from the more traditional way of doing cognitive science or neuroscience, this is definitely one of the areas uh, where mm -hmm. I see a lot of potential. And you're completely right that, um, you know, just because we take a holistic approach doesn't mean that the details don't matter, right? right, right. Um, in fact, quite the opposite, um, you know, the, the, you know, from a traditional cognitive science point of view where, the body was to some extent just the implementation of a virtual machine that ran, then ran the computational software or something like that, you know, um, the body didn't matter at all. To some extent. Mm -hmm. The details of it didn't matter, you right, know. Right. Um, and so so actually we're going in the opposite direction. We're saying that, yeah, everything matters, you know. Like uh, you might not notice it, um, but, you know, even if there's a little twitch somewhere in your stomach, you might, you know, slightly, you know, relate difference to your, your mm -hmm. the person you're talking to or something like that. Maybe outside of your, you know, reflective awareness. Um, but uh, it, it seems like um, if experience uh, really is, you know, the way in which we relate and the way in which we interact and all of that, uh, you know, gets shaped and modulated in this, you know, super nested, high dimensional way, then you can't discount the lower levels. Um, mm. Uh, mm. They will also percolate through all of that nested hierarchy and make their changes felt. Right. Yeah, I think uh, Dehan's language of local and global is helpful there, right? Like we have a global experience where things manifest and show up, um, but there's so many local components that add to that. And, you know, to lose sight of either is actually to do a kind of reductive violence mm -hmm. in a way. I remember in my undergrad um kind of the moment I realized there was something seriously wrong with cognitive psychology. Um, we were doing, uh, it was like criminal psychology or some, something along those lines. And um, our professor at the time, I won't, won't give his name or anything, but he said something along, he, he was reporting on these findings where they'd given inmates like really high doses of fish oils and, you know, the, the kind of level of violence decreased somewhat. And he was—he didn't have a kind of conceptual framework to make sense of that whatsoever, mm -hmm. and and I was blown away at the time as a student. Just going, surely there's, you know, it's it's not that hard to understand, right? But the fact of the kind of the way he'd been constrained by his own kind of conceptualization of what mind is and so on 
didn't allow him to make any sort of links between, you know, biophysiology and behavioral outcomes, which is very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, even if we can heal that wound, right, we're doing something well. Mm-hmm. Um, so to kind of maybe wind it down a little bit, um, I know I said that a few minutes ago, but now I'm really doing it. Uh, I think a lot of people who listen to this hopefully are students who are coming into embodied cognitive science. Um, and I'm interested, and also for my for my own purposes, but I'm interested um, at this point, you know, if you were to point to, say, a few resources for people or... Um, Actually, one I'm really interested in, you you were talking about the brain and we haven't spent enough time there. Um, who, who do you think is worth reading as a kind of st- step in this direction? Um, so I, I, I'll ask that about the brain and then you can generalize that more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really enjoyed um, Busaki's recent book, The Brain from Inside Out. Um, so he has some footnotes in there actually referring to the work by um, Varela and body cognition and, and things like that and saying that, you know, he feels himself actually uh, allied um, to that um, style of, uh, of research, but he, he tries to comment it from a neuroscientific point of view. Mm. So I think there's a lot of possibility of taking his work and thinking about how to, you know, make it more interactive to some extent. Oh, cool. Um, there's uh, Pessoa's book, The, the Cognitive Emotional Brain, uh, which basically argues that um, the traditional distinctions between cognition and emotion um, are unfounded and that to some extent um, all cognition is also effective at the same time, which is also fits very nicely what we said about, you know, uh, meaning and concern and so on as, uh, you know, as the foundation of, of cognition. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, um, I, I, let me add one more. The, there's Fuchs's book, The Ecological Brain. Um, and for people who have a more philosophical bent rather than a neuroscientific bent, so he's a psychiatrist, um, but also a philosopher by training. And in that book, he really unpacks this more broader framework of different levels of description going inside the body and what does the brain do there? What's the role of the brain? But also then expanding out into the context mm. of caretaker infant interactions and the larger social context. Mm. Um, and he brings to it this phenological point of view that uh, experience matters and makes a difference. And um, so for him, the brain is actually a, 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 the mediation organ or mm. something like that he calls mm. it. So, so he specifically defines it with respect to interaction. Mm. Nice, nice. Uh, I'll have to check out the first two of them. I didn't, didn't come across them. And then more broadly, like for students maybe who are kind of interested in this domain in general, um, I mean, what's do you have suggestions for students? I know it's always kind of a weird question, but um, do you? Do you for, in terms of reading material, or or what are you asking about? No, no, I mean generally, right? So like, there's 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 a there's always um, a point. I think. It, in a way, I'm asking you to make a pitch, right, for biochemistry <laughs> <of> science. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so we're 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 going to have a course on embodied cognitive science um, that's uh, uh, starting soon. And um, given that what we said about the the role of mind uh, in in everything that we do, uh, you know, if you define it as you know um, that which makes the world show up for us, um, then there's really no subject area in science um, that's untouched by the topics that we will be discussing. Mm. Um, I mean, even cosmology, let's say, you know, can't escape from the fact that, you know, their observers somehow relating to what they're perceiving. Mm. Um, uh, you know, so so I think that general scientific practice 
um, of how do we do observation, how do we do measurements, how do we relate to the systems we're studying, um, all uh, you know are inflected somehow by our concept of what the mind is and how, what perception is and what consciousness is. And then uh, we can also say that um, this this notion that we kept returning to that interaction matters. It's not just Asian environment interaction that matters, although that's true too, and that will apply to all the you know lab animals that are, are always and so on. Mm. But just interaction itself between two systems, you know, uh, uh, it can be not not an agent, but just one system, a technical system, and another system, let's say a physical system. But thinking about the way in which the nonlinear interactions between the two might actually transform the kind of activities that you could observe in them. Um, you know, will also sh will, the course will also sharpen your thinking about uh, those things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, th is that course going to be available outside of the university? No, exclusively for OIS students for the okay, moment. So, this is directed <laughs> at you, OIS students. But I think to to you know to kind of add to that or extend it a little bit, um, I had Fred Cummins on here speaking um, a while ago, and I'm not sure exactly how these are going to go out. So that might be after this or before. But um, <clears throat> that conversation was really about how, I suppose, to put it simply, in kind of theorizing and thinking about embodiment and doing our science in that sense, um, we've maybe stumbled upon something that's bigger than any of us, right? It's like a real kind of paradigm shift in in um, in thinking about scientific practice and philosophizing and our place in the world, right? And our being and our becoming and all those big ideas. Um, and for me, it is it is this kind of unifying point right where a lot of things start to come together and the whole interdisciplinarity that preceded um you know that it kind of characterized the institution and characterized thought and so on mm -hmm. uh, is no longer permissible in the same way right so um in a way the kind of the spirit of cognitive science is really realized i think in, a, in an embodied stance mm -hmm. now there's obviously different ways people interpret that and and take it and you know, some are going to be more to people's likings than others. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but what is it, do you think about an action in particular that, um, I suppose, embeds your preferences or keeps your attention and keeps you kind of coming back? Um, what you're saying there is very important. I think, actually, it does offer us an opportunity to reboot somehow science in general, right? So science sometimes seems to get lost in, in, in disciplines and big data and very, you know, uh, narrow questions. Um, and there's a sense that, you know, there's a lack of integration of mm -hmm. like, what does it all mean? How does it all fit together? Um, and, uh, you know, the, at the beginning, you know, science was actually philosophy to something. It was natural philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like with the inactive paradigm, there are some people explicitly arguing that this is a return to a kind of natural philosophy, actually. That you know we're trying to create a general integrated framework in which everything can be situated and fit in, and what's most important for me there is that it's one in which the subject is not excluded by definition, mm. right? Where science originally was founded by, uh, you know, excluding everything subjective, right? And that worked very well when you're dealing with let's say physics and so on, but then when you 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 end up in cognitive science and say now let's apply the scientific methods to to human beings well there's no way that you can exclude the subjective right mm. uh, it's actually that's what you want to study right so mm. um, really by studying this properly and systematically um, you know it could be a, a paradigm shift of epic proportions because we're really changing the very definition of what it means to do science yeah yeah 
Yeah, for I mean, for me, this is a bit kind of tongue in cheek, but I do think like if you have sympathies for something like French philosophy, that's you know about relationality and complexity, and um, but you also have this kind of bent towards the naturalistic uh, language and and science, um, and action is is in a weird way a kind of good wedding of the two, right? I, I feel you know um, well kind of disposed to be able to at least grasp at some of what those philosophers are, are talking about. Um, you know, when they try and sit, situate the individual and so on uh, and think about uh, social conditions. Um, but I also feel like, you know, there's a, another foot in the natural sciences as, and is trying to be rigorous in the way that that's kind of well disposed to be. And empirical. And empirical, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay, Tom, thank you. Um, last thing, if, if people want to get in touch with you, um, what's the best way to do that? Just send me an email. Do you, can you give your email or uh, tom.froze at oist.jp um, if you're interested in our unit if you're interested in taking the course uh, just drop us a line and uh, you're on Twitter as well right yeah and uh, you can follow our unit uh, and on Twitter too uh, exuoist at exuoist okay thank you very much thanks Tom for talking with me today thank you that was very enjoyable <laughs>